Hello, and welcome to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. And as we do in every episode, I want to just give you a brief overview of what you can expect in listening to these episodes. Um, the program is entitled The Soul of Business um, for a specific reason. It, it's my particular bias that you know, literally everything in this universe has a vivifying component to it. And by vivifying, I mean it's got this element that brings it forth and it causes it to be. Uh, and that's you know, true in nature. You look around nature and you know, even though it may look inanimate, the tree has a, a source, a soul, if you will. And I don't mean this in a religious sense. I mean it you know, literally from a life expression perspective. And businesses are no different than that. I think that every business, although it's a collection of individuals in relationship, that aggregation of those individuals gives the uh, organization uh, its soul in many ways. Uh, certainly the founding mission of the organization was the catalyst uh, for most organizations. And that soul gets expressed in, in a myriad of different fashions. And, and it's my contention that when we get disconnected from that soul, uh, things begin to go off the rails fairly significantly. So what I'm doing in these uh, episodes in the soul of business is bringing in uh, some guests that have got experience in working with uh, this life force, if you will, uh, keeping, keeping people connected, keeping the organization on an even keel as it moves itself forward. Um, authors, thought leaders, uh, business people, uh, lay people, I mean, all kind, from all kinds of life, you know, walks of life. We've all got perspectives on this. And the importance of this for me is very simple. Uh, business is the most pervasive force, literally, on this planet today. There is nothing that escapes the touch of business's activities. And in that context, it's my perspective and actually my bias that business has a responsibility to take responsibility for the whole. Uh, everything that the business does has a ripple effect out there. So how business approaches that and how business leaders approach that and how consumers approach businesses makes a big difference in terms of how uh, all of this actually transpires. So that's uh, the context of this program, and that's my, my, my soapbox preamble. Um, the guests that I have uh, for us today, I am absolutely ecstatic about. Um, I, tr I truly am. He reached out to me uh, via LinkedIn uh, connection, and he's, uh, I think, going to bring a perspective that is unique to the show. Uh, it's certainly one that I haven't had uh, the opportunity to explore in, in a lot of detail. Um, Major General Craig Weldon uh, is my guest today, and Craig um, has spent 30 years in the Army. He's a Major General, retired, um, and what's interesting about his biography here is uh, not only his length of service, um, he's led soldiers at each level from lieutenant to general officer while serving 10 years in Europe and another 12 in the Pacific. As an armor and cavalry officer, he commanded a base in Germany. As a colonel and as a brigadier general, he oversaw a $1.6 billion program supporting soldiers and family members worldwide. And that's a big deal. Present at the Pentagon during 9-11, he subsequently led the effort to secure the state of Hawaii, where he's currently residing. He's going to be moving uh, from there in just a bit, and we'll talk about that because there's a little trans transformational journey he's uh, embarking on right now. Um, but he uh, 
led the effort to secure the state of Hawaii from terrorist attacks, and it was an effort that received national recognition. And after retiring from the Army in 2003, he chaired a national conference entitled Information Sharing and Homeland Security for over three years. Um, in 2008, he was asked to organize and run a, uh, a Secretary of the Army initiative to bring greater awareness to the American public of the sacrifices of service members and their families during a time of war. And for this effort, he was recognized by Secretary Pete Guerin with the top two awards for civilians. In 2010, he became the Executive Director for the Marine Corps Forces Pacific, overseeing a multi-billion dollar program to reposition Marines in the Pacific, the largest such effort since World War II. And in 2011, he was inducted into the Purdue University Tri-Services ROTC Hall of Fame, which actually is where he got his start in the military, you know, kind of a full circle back in, uh, uh, back to Purdue. So, Craig, thank you for being a guest, and um, thank you for your service, you know, truly. Uh, well, and, thank you, Blaine. And I'm very excited, like I said, to have you as a guest here. I, I think you bring in a, a perspective that is going to be fascinating to our listeners, and it's certainly going to be fascinating to me. So, what I'd like to open with is a question that I typically open with on this show is the, the title of the program is the soul of business. Uh, and just hearing that, I mean, particularly uh, it's the tagline uh, for my book, Compassionate Capitalism, which many people thought was kind of an oxymoron uh, to begin with. <laughs> um, so when I say the soul of business, what does that evoke? What does that kind of bring up for you? Well, there's a. I think there's a social responsibility for businesses to contribute uh, to the world's uh, to goodness in the world, and they do that uh, well with products and services. Clearly, uh, but as you say in your book, uh, which I found fascinating, absolutely. Um, sometimes they're too focused on just profit and the bottom line, and that can be destructive. Uh, and we are seeing uh, the roots of the the results of that all over the world. So, you know, uh, I, I personally tend to lean towards company that demonstrate social responsibility in some manner or another, uh, if I can, and not just the bottom line. I had an interesting journey, as you said, in my life. I spent um, my early years growing up in an Air Force family, uh, went off to Purdue University on an Army ROTC scholarship, spent 30 years in the Army, and then I had a break where I went into the private sector for seven years before returning to the federal government. And I found that seven-year period fascinating because there were some business entities that I had engagements with that had no social responsibility, and it was all about the bottom line. And I almost felt like a, you know, a greasy salesman uh, mm -hmm. because really all they were trying to do with me was to leverage my experience, my contacts uh, with the military, and I just didn't feel comfortable at all. In other cases, I had uh, work like you described, the, uh, the two-year journey I had working for Pete Guerin, the Secretary of the Army, which was probably one of the most rewarding periods uh, of my life uh, because I traveled all over the country. I spoke to hundreds of different groups, some large, some small, and we had every single state governor and hundreds of cities, counties, and other uh, organizations demonstrate their support for the military uh, by stepping up and signing a covenant, uh, oftentimes uh, con 
donating millions of dollars of efforts to support soldiers and families. Secretary Guerin in 2008, when I was asked to, to take this on, was concerned that we don't get ourselves into the syndrome that we had during Vietnam. Right. When the American public turned against the military, not the politicians, not the people who are making policy, but the military, who really are all about selfless service. You know, the reason people join the military oftentimes is they, they want to give something back to their country. Right. And the reason they fight so well all over the country is because of the guy in the foxhole next to them uh, oftentimes. Right. And sadly, that generation that grew up during Vietnam, and you and I uh, remember that time, uh, turned not just against the government, but against the United States military. And he wanted to make sure that didn't happen again. And I don't think it has because, you know, every time I get on an airplane now, I have, uh, I listen to United Airlines or Delta or, or whoever it is, say, uh, military members, uh, please board now. And then you often hear people say, thank you for your service. Wow, what a change since, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Truly, truly. Yeah. So that evokes something in me just in terms of a question. When I think about it in, the, in terms of the soul of the business, um, if, if, you know, if I go back to, you know, 1970, 72, 73, and, and I lived through that just as, as you did, um, what was missing seemed to be a connection to that. You know, and I'm going to use the word esprit here, you know, you know that, that spirit that was visible and could be recognized as something life-giving, life-affirming. Um, so the journey that I heard you describe here was one of, you know, kind of getting back to that sensibility with the military. Um, you know, I've got a very good friend, Richard Strosey, uh Heckler, and Richard has done works with uh, the uh, Special Forces, and he did some work with the Afghan Army um, in, in terms of helping develop their expertise. Um, and in, in, in working with Rick, uh, Richard and talking with him, uh, you know, he's an Aikido master, and, and he's uh, yeah, done a lot of work with bringing uh, – kind of a, a different sensibility to the, to, uh, of the martial arts to the special forces area. Uh, meditation and a number of other things that kind of, kind of you know, wouldn't, would seem antithetical uh, to that. Um, but he's, right. his commentary to me, uh, and I've known Richard for years, was that these are some of the most receptive folks in the world uh, to what, for me, and I've, I've, I've you know, practiced martial arts for a number of years, um, is, is really a life-affirming approach to you know, being on the planet. You know, martial arts, is, it's not about fighting, it's about centering, it's about connection. You know, and, and this is kind of my take on it. You know, that connecting back to, you know, what's real. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I, I'm just curious, you know, you're, you're, you're making a transition right now from uh, DOD, from the Department of Defense, uh, after 40 some odd years, you know, literally, into back to the private sector. What what do you think you're bringing to the private sector that is making a difference? Because I th I I I got, I've got a sense of what that is, but you know, for you, what do you think that is, and how do you think that's going to be received? Well, we will see. <laughs> it's uh, it's you know, it's uh, you never know what's around the next corner, and I, I actually talk about that in my book. You get to a fork in the road, and you sometimes you think you're supposed to go left, and your circumstances take you in a different direction, 
And uh, at the time, sometimes you may think, why is this happening to me? Um, that's happened to me a number of times in, in my life. My wife said about a year and a half ago, she was ready. To, I live in Hawaii right now for your listeners. I've lived here now for nine years. Uh, we lived here three years when I was in, in the military. Uh, it was my last assignment in the military from 2000 to 2003. We moved to Florida and I spent seven years in Florida. And five years into that, she said, I want to move back to Hawaii. And I said, Hawaii? Hawaii is expensive. I'd have to get a job. And she said, fair enough, get a job. <laughs> and so I started looking, looking for opportunities to come back. And I was looking for anything, you know, private sector, government service. And thankfully, I landed uh, with the Marine Corps, which has been an absolutely fascinating experience for me to, to w witness the cultural similarities, but the cultural differences between the Army and the Marine Corps. And I've had a wonderful nine years with the Marine Corps. Uh, so we moved back here in 2010, and a year and a half ago, she said, I'd like to move back to the mainland. And I was shocked because I thought I was going to see our ashes, you know, spread across Kaneohe Bay. And I said, why is that? She said, we're just too far from family, and uh, family's important, and, and we're not getting any younger. Yeah. And I said, okay, fair enough. So where do you want to go? And she said, East Coast is the closest. We have family from Maryland to Florida. And I said, uh, where? And she said, I don't want to be too cold. I don't want to be too hot. So I said, that sounds like the Carolinas. So we just narrowed it down finally to a place called Bluffton, South Carolina. But when she mentioned this, I, and then we started building a house, which is almost completed now, I started to think, what am I going to do next? Because I don't want to just go fishing and play golf. It's just not in me to do that. Mm -hmm. I've, been, uh, I've been a servant of the... A, a public servant, if you will, uh, for most of my life. And somebody once asked me, somebody that I was talking to about LinkedIn, they said, they said, uh, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to give back. I have the ability now to give back 50 years of experience uh, that I've experienced in leadership and life. And I'd like to give that back uh, to generations that follow. And they said, well, how do you want to do that? And I said, I want to be a public speaker. I want to be a professional speaker, and I want to talk to young groups. I want to talk to corporate America, and they said, well, you need a book, and I said, a book, <laughs> and that was intimidating. I got that chill up my spine, you know, like, yeah. what do you mean I need a book? And they said, yeah, you need to write a book. The other thing you need is a tape. Uh, nobody's going to hire you to go speak in front of anybody unless they can see you in action. And they said, I can get you on uh, a television interview if you'd like. I said, sure. So I, uh, I did a 30-minute television interview on leadership, and at the end, the interviewer said, writing these down. Oh, uh, well, you should, because they're, uh, they're fascinating. We, we shouldn't lose uh, your experience. So I wrote a 14-page article. I floated it among uh, a dozen people. I said, what do you think? And most of them said, hey, this is great. And half of them said, you should turn this into a book. <laughs> and I said once again to myself, self, I can't write a book. Are you kidding me? And to make it a long story short, I ended up writing a book. Leadership, the art of inspiring people to be their best is the result. It's been on Amazon and Audible now for a couple of months. It's doing well. It's an uh, international bestseller in five countries and uh, was number three in England. I'm not sure why you know, who numbered Sun Tzu happened to be number one at the time I hit number three, <laughs> the art of war. Right. And so I'm looking for Sun Tzu, but I think he's gone by now. Yeah. He in any case, any case, uh, my 
my presentations uh, will be about the things I wrote about in my book. And it's about character. It's about trust. It's about giving back. It's about uh, uh, le leaving a legacy. It's about uh, what I think are the important things of life. You know, what is the greatest legacy somebody can leave? And it's not, in my mind, millions of dollars uh, to your kids. It's uh, leaving what you have learned while you've been on this planet uh, to the next generation, both positive and good. Yeah. Because I tell people, as you're on your journey and you pick up these rocks on the, on the path, uh, some of them are good, some of them are bad. Put them both in your rucksack because you want to remember the good and repeat it and you want to make sure you remind yourself of the bad so that you don't repeat it. Yeah. Yeah, I've uh, been fortunate to get a uh, pre-release copy. Thank you very much for sending it to me, the PDF version of your book. It, it's, it's wonderfully written. It truly is. Uh, so, and what I particularly like are the stories that you know, flesh out the lessons. Um, the, the title, you know, The Art of Developing People, uh, or your subtitle, The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best. Um, you know, there's an old aphorism that uh, you know, people that uh, don't know how to do something need to teach it uh, in order to get better at it. You teach best what you most need to learn. Well, I've been teaching leadership for about 40 years. You've actually been doing leadership for about 40 years. Um, the art of inspiring people in, in the, so there is a confluence here. I have always experienced leadership to be an art, you know, even though people have asked me over and over and over again for a prescription. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's prescriptive. I think it is an art. It's fluid. Um, I, I'm very struck by some of the, the uh, chapter titles uh, that you have in the book. And I was just wondering if you might expand on them just a bit here. Um, particularly I'm interested in, uh, trusting your people, and you know, the other one here had to do with a favorite piece of mine, memento mori. You know, remember you must. Yeah. So I, I mentioned those two for a couple of reasons. One is, from my perspective, all an organization is is a collection of people that are in relationship. Uh, they're in relationship, obviously, with each other, but they're also in relationship with vision, with values, with process, with, I mean, literally the desks and the chairs that they're sitting in, they have a relational quality to them. And because it's about relationship, re you know, reality is a relational construct. And it's predicated, the effectiveness of, of, of these relationships is predicated on trust. If, if trust is missing, the relationships will probably collapse. And this is relevant for an organization because to the degree, from my perspective, that relationships are working well, you're going to have a pretty good shot at being successful. So in your years in, in service, uh, you've seen a lot of things, both our armed forces, uh, but also other nations. Uh, and, you, and you actually talk about this a little bit. Uh, you reference, I think, Hungary uh, in your book, um, in part of this chapter. How did you come to um, value trust or to see you know, trust as, as so ecumenical to the process of leading? Well, we went through a, quite a journey in the military from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s. Uh, coming out of the Vietnam War, we were uh, a draft army. Uh, we were broken down. Uh, we did not have the trust of the American public, obviously. 
And the people who stayed with the army, the young lieutenants coming, the captains coming out of Vietnam, who actually stayed there, uh, have to be given a lot of credit because they're the ones that uh, built the army back up uh, to what it was in a success in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, just 20 years later, when Saddam Hussein went into Vietnam, or I'm sorry, into uh, Kuwait, and uh, and you know after a 30-day bombing campaign and a four-day war, we were victorious. Uh, that just didn't happen overnight. Uh, one of the things uh, we changed from a conscription army to an all-volunteer force in the 70s, and we struggled with that to try to figure out how things work. We went through a period which uh, many of us called a zero defects army, meaning mm -hmm. that uh, everybody was afraid to make a decision because if they made the wrong decision, uh, they were done. Uh, and I think in the early 80s, uh, 1980 time frame, when Reagan became uh, president, and this isn't about politics, uh, I'm, I've been pretty much apolitical my entire life, but about the time that Reagan came into office, we started to see re resurgence in national pride in the military. We started to see a rebuilding of the military. And we started to see a cultural change in the military. One of the things that happened was that we introduced, we got rid of the zero defects army. Mm -hmm. We started to put trust, faith, and confidence in subordinates and giving them uh, the authority to make decisions and to make mistakes. And as long as they weren't life-threatening, uh, you could learn from those mistakes and you could get better. We created uh, a process called the after-action review. And the after-action review is now well embedded in our military, has been for many, many years, where after you conduct a training event or any operational event, uh, the unit typically conducts uh, an after-action review. It can be formal or it can be very informal. Uh, but it's, it's a, and I talk about uh, how that works in my book. It often starts off by the leader, the person in charge standing up and saying, let me tell you what I did right and what I did wrong. Mm -hmm. today in this event yeah. and that is anathema to many militaries and I experienced that and in, in the one you mentioned in Hungary and after the Berlin Wall fell and the Supreme Army called partnership he started sending military delegations over to the former Eastern European countries like Hungary like Czechoslovakia like East, uh, East Germany the former East Germany uh, and engaging those militaries. I happened to be a lieutenant colonel in 1992, I think it was, and led the first uh, military exchange into Hungary. And we went in with a small team of four or five people, and I was absolutely amazed at the differences, cultural differences, between our militaries. First of all, they treated me like I was a general at the time. And the things that struck me were that I never really talked to a, a Hungarian soldier. I never really talked to a Hungarian sergeant. The only people they would allow me to talk to were captains, majors, and lieutenant colonels. And even static displays of military equipment would have a captain or a major standing there describing exactly what I was looking at. They did a firepower demonstration uh, which is choreographed from the time they crossed the line of departure to the time they got to the end. No freewheeling at all. We stayed in a dasha uh, in a lake that was a uh, resort for militaries. When I walked into my little cabin, I thought I'd 
taken a step back in time. It was a 1950s era uh, from the light bulb to the handle on the uh, refrigerator door. Now, break, break. Fast forward a couple of months, and we brought Hungarians to visit us in Germany. I was an operations officer for an army division in Europe at the time. They only brought colonels and generals. They didn't send lieutenant colonels, majors, and captains like we did. I was the lieutenant. I was a senior guy when we went over, and I was lieutenant colonel. So they bring these generals and these colonels, and we had them briefed by our sergeants. And they were absolutely shocked when we had them eat lunch with our soldiers out of earshot of any of us. They could not believe that we trusted our subordinates in the way that we did. And it spoke volumes about trust, mm-hmm. about how their military, which was modeled after the Soviet uh, mothership, uh, as all of them were, uh, put zero trust in any of their subordinates. We understood that at the time. They developed a plan, and they told their subordinates, this is the plan, don't veer from it. We developed a plan, and we'd say, this is our intent. Now, we understand that as soon as you cross the line of departure, things are going to change. So if you don't have communications with me, then follow my intent. Use your best judgment. And we empower subordinates. uh, And and that really is the big difference between – uh, our military and the militaries of the former Eastern European countries. I actually saw the same dynamic in some of the Western European countries, a lack of trust in subordinates. And if you want to take that analogy and metaphor and transfer it to the business world, I think it's the same thing. Absolutely. Now, who, knows, who knows the most about how a product should be put together than the person on the line putting the product together? And the effective leader is a person who gets out of the office and walks down onto the floor and engages with the people who actually are doing uh, the business. Yeah, perfect. The the, uh, meme that I kind of play with a little bit here is, you know, we build great companies by building great people. And if we've got our focus in the right place, the organization is going to succeed because the people are actually – taking charge. They, they're, they're, they, and I love, you know, follow my intent. Uh, and if we're clear about what that intent is, we can get pretty creative. And that intent gets us back to the soul of the organization in many cases. Yep. And the soul yeah, of the that, Yeah, this, this, uh, you raise a point that sparked a thought, uh, talking about intent. Commanders in the military typically come in for a two-year period, maximum three-year period, and then they move on. Mm-hmm. And if you come in, when I came into battalion command, I had a thousand soldiers and I knew I was only going to be there for two years. So I wrote down a philosophy of command uh, at the front end, which described for every soldier in the organization what I thought was important, what I thought was less important, and what was non negotiable. It happens to be Appendix A in my book. Um, I wrote it in 1989 because that's when I became a battalion commander. As I read through it today, it's exactly the way I feel about life and about leadership as I did 30 years ago. Nothing has really changed. And telling people up front early on what's important, the direction you want to go is critically important so that three or four months later, they're all not trying to figure out who you are and what you think is important. Yeah. Um, I, I, I remember walking into a conference room with a brand new commander one time and he sat at the end of the table and there was a clock at the other end on the wall and the staff was coming in and, and they were sitting down and it was about five minutes till nine. And at nine o'clock, he turned to his uh, assistant and he said, lock the door. 
So his assistant went over there and locked the door. There were two staff members missing from the conference. Uh, and, and they showed up about a minute or two later and found the door locked. And they knocked on the door, and the commander turned to his assistant and said, don't open the door. Now, he made a point about yeah. timeliness. None of us knew that he was uh, a bit anal about timeliness <laughs> until that point. And yeah. he got that point across. And I, as I reflect on that experience, I thought, would there have been a better way to tell everybody about his personal quirks? That if you are one minute late to a meeting, he's going to embarrass and humiliate you by locking the door so that you can't get in. It seems to me that there are better ways to communicate, uh, particularly when you're brand new and people don't quite understand how you operate. Yeah. So uh, Appendix B in my book happens to be a Weldon on Weldon brief that I developed years ago that said, let me tell you who I am and how I operate so you know from the very first day what kind of a person I am. And, uh, and I tell people what my strengths and my weaknesses are because I know I have weaknesses. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's important to tell people that very early and often. Very early. Well, I'm struck, you know, you know, the average, like you said, the average tenure of command is uh, two to three years. And that's also, interestingly, about the average tenure of uh, a CEO in a major corporation uh, today. Um, and I've worked with a number of CEOs where that has exactly been their tenure. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of them spent the first year and a half waiting for people to figure them out and lost yeah. time as a consequence. <laughs> right. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, the, the chapter on uh, Memento Mori, um, sure. I mean, I, I'm struck with that because that is actually part of my signature line on my emails. And, and uh, you know, my wife gave me a pen you know, that says Memento Mori. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that is actually pretty close to me. Uh, how did you come to, you know, and we'll actually kind of close our interview off with this, but I think this is a you know, really interesting chapter. And the way that you went about describing what was going on with that is, is useful. So you know the story as, as well as I do, but perhaps some of your listeners may not. Uh, a Roman general is coming back from a huge victory, and he's on his chariot, and he's coming through Rome. And behind him on his chariot is his slave. And as he goes through and sees all the adulation of the Roman people and they're and they're really praising him as he comes back the slave leans forward and he whispers into his uh, roman general's ear memento mori and it means in latin remember you are mortal and what that means is look when you become a general when you become a ceo when you become a leader uh you still put your pants on the same way everybody else does you still have the same uh, potential for failure that everybody else does. You have to remember uh, your roots. You have to remember, uh, you have to demonstrate humility. You have to remember that the way you got to where you are is because many, many people helped you get there. Most people, uh, other than people like uh, Michael Jordan and other superb athletes, don't get there on their own. Most people get there because of the team that they were part of, that they grew up with, Certainly in the military, any general who becomes a general uh, often, or admiral, often uh, says at the promotion, uh, I didn't get here by myself. I got here because all of the wonderful soldiers, Marines, sailors uh, that I worked with, I worked for, and have, who have worked for me uh, mm -hmm. through the years. And it's important to uh, remember that. 
and and the reason I wrote the uh, the chapter is because so many senior leaders forget that, and there's evidence of that every day in the news. Yeah. Uh, you see it with failures uh, from people falling on, and in the military, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, uh, but as highly regarded as the military is, and as uh, as strongly as we feel about integrity and all those moral values that are important to great leadership, we still have senior leaders who fail, uh, and it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I've known a number of them, yeah. and I and I have to scratch my head and say. You, you know, you obviously forgot where you came from. Somebody did a frontal lobotomy at some point. Um, <laughs> tell you a quick story. When I, when I became a general, um, the day after I got promoted, I turned to a, a mentor of mine who was a two-star general at the time. And I said, you know, I feel exactly the way I did yesterday when I was a colonel. So tell me what's different about being a general. And he thought for a moment and he said, well, first of all, your jokes don't get any funnier. Uh, you don't get any better looking, and if it tastes good, spit it out. And I thought that's kind of humorous, but as I thought about that more and more, I thought, wow, that is powerful. Your jokes don't get any funnier, but people laugh at your jokes now because you're a general. You don't get any better looking. I mean, none of us do as we age. Yet, you know, now you think you're Don Juan uh, because you're a general, and everybody acts like you are. And then if it tastes good, spit it out. One quick story, if I may. Uh, when, when I, and I learned this from another general. It's all about picking up the rocks along the path that you find. Uh, and I, I adopted this. I put this rock in my rucksack. And when I became a general, I did the same thing. I would gather my staff together uh, about once a quarter because every now and then we get new staff members. And I say staff, I mean the, the close staff, the aide, the uh, secretary, the driver, uh, the administrative people, the people who work with me on a day-to-day basis. And we would go into the conference room and I'd say, look, I want you to know that I will never cross an ethical line intentionally, never. Oftentimes, circumstances will pull us in that direction. And what I'm telling all of you is you need to have your antenna up to make sure that we don't cross that line because we don't want to find ourselves on the other side of the boundary suddenly saying, how the heck did we get here? And it's because somebody was well-intended. They were trying to help the general, uh, either through travel uh, or, and that happens all the time. Yeah. Jeffrey Epstein uh, gave, you know, Jeffrey Epstein gave free airplane rides to lots of luminaries, and they're all starting to come out of the woodwork right now. And, you know, you have to say, should I be here? Should I be doing what I'm, you know, when they put this piece of candy in front of me? And so what I would tell them is, you will never find me crossing that line intentionally. And now I'm going to ask the lawyer to tell you where those boundaries are. And the lawyer would then tell them travel, per diem, uh, gifts, yep. you know, all the red lines, all the boundary lines to make sure that we stayed inside those boundaries. And I did that every quarter. And I've witnessed other generals now in the Marine Corps uh, do exactly the same thing. You have to constantly be aware that you are living in a class ball everybody's looking at you mm-hmm. and many people are looking to take you down yeah so yeah all of this speaks to character yeah i, I think yeah. ultimately you know, kind of bottom line for me anyway comes down to that and that's the art of inspiring people to be their best uh and certainly i mean the, that, that last anecdote uh i can be my best when i'm aware of where the boundaries are 
uh, the, you know, the container allows me a lot of freedom uh, if I know just how to operate within that, you know, that structure. So, right. um, Greg, I wish we had more time. I really do. Uh, I'm going to bring this uh, home for a landing here. Um, I would love to have you back on at some point in time because uh, we've, I mean, we've touched only, <laughs> I mean, literally, only on two chapters of, of, of what I can, you know, actually found to be one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. So I, I'd, I'd like to have you back and just kind of you know, open that up a little bit more if you're, if you're amenable to it. And any any time, Blaine. Absolutely. Okay. Now remember, I'm six six hours difference, perhaps, from you now, and in thirty days I'll be on the East Coast, so we'll right. be closer, probably. Yeah, that that'll work better. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is Blaine Bartlett. You've been listening to the Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. My guest today has been Major General Craig Wilden, and I think that you have uh, gotten some very interesting lessons. Uh, at least I have, uh, and I want to thank you again, Craig. Um, for your time. Uh, where, where can people find out more information about you and what you're up to as you embark on this second half of your life? So I tell people you can get a window into my soul on my website, craigweldon.com. <laughs> it tells you uh, there's over 20 testimonials from people who have known me very, very well over the years. Uh, there's my book, uh, sample chapters of my book. The table of contents is there. Uh, book reviews, um, a couple of videos uh, that I've made, and and podcasts. And if you're willing, I'm I'd be uh, honored to be able to put this podcast on my website as well. Absolutely. But Craig dot com. That's D E N, not D O N. Oftentimes people spell it wrong. Uh, w H E L D E N. Craigweldon dot com. That's how you find me, and that's how you contact me as well, because there's a a link to find me as well. Perfect. Perfect. Hope you get uh, a flood of inquiries coming your way. Thanks. <laughs> this is Blaine Bartlett. You can get more information about me at blainebartlett.com. Uh, my company website uh, is avatar-resources.com. And until next time, uh, continue the journey to the soul of business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.